quickly review the purposes of what we're trying to do here. Um, to discuss a Christian framework for dealing with social barriers of the moral and psychological kind. So like we talked about last week, um, some social barriers like race, age, culture, language can divide us as people. But what we're trying to do here is go beneath that and see what it is about our attitudes that latch on to things like race or age or culture and turn them into barriers. So instead of starting with the surface level stuff of what we choose to be divided on, to try to go a level below that and see why do we, do we latch on to those things. To consider what Christianity has to say to the spirit of this particular age, we're really going to get into that next week. But it's kind of all-encompassing, because if we're thinking about communicating well with people who are different from us, then that means figuring out what common ground can we draw from in order to speak the gospel to people in a way that's understandable. To repent when necessary, that's always the case. To see once again the beauty of Jesus, especially in his incarnation, suffering, and sacrificial death. So the whole framework here, the whole idea is that looking at how Jesus has come close to us in his incarnation and in his suffering opens our eyes to see how we can also draw near to, draw near to those who are around us. To further instill a welcoming ethos into the DNA of Resurrection SD. So to just continue growing as a community, as a church, um, in being the kind of place where anyone can show up and hear the gospel and not where those social barriers aren't getting in the way of God's word going out. And then again, I'm just going to keep harping on this to recruit volunteers for the Little Fellowship and Downpipe Fellowship. Especially on Wednesday nights at 5, we need people who are ministry-minded to come and hang out. Um, you can always use help on Sundays at the Ladle. And also, if you're interested in being a mentor to somebody who's transitioning out of homelessness and into stability, permanent housing, we're also currently recruiting mentors for that. So, part of the, the original idea of this class was to help equip us to feel more comfortable interacting in different contexts, such as with the homeless community. Okay, last week we went through the introduction of what are social barriers and why should we worry about them, and then we really delved into this idea of uncleanness, both on a physical level and on a moral level, of presupposing that we are clean and that this person that we're interacting is unclean in some way that afraid of being contaminated. And we looked at how the incarnation of Jesus as he becomes as much like us and as close to us as he possibly could with a fully full humanity, full human development, human life, human suffering, how he drew as near to us as he could, how that breaks down that barrier. Today we're going to get through the next two barriers that get in our way of interacting with people who are different from us. Next week, we're going to look at what what are some of the barriers that the people that we come into contact with might have, and how can we navigate those and get behind those barriers. 
But this week we're still being introspective and thinking about what what about us prevents us from making these connections. So, um, two goals for today is to talk about culture shock and to talk about pain, trauma, and dysfunction. Um, and how that can be barrier. So the first one is culture shock. Um, have you guys, have you heard the term culture shock? Has anyone ever been in an experience where they would call what they felt like culture shock? Yeah? yeah? yeah. Yep. Um, the definition of it is a state of bewilderment and distress experienced by an individual who is suddenly exposed to a new, strange, or foreign social and cultural environment. I think of, in my life, when I was, uh, after I had just spent a year in Honduras, in La Fay, a very poor neighborhood, um, had been there for a year, been totally immersed in that, was speaking Spanish every day, and then I came back and immediately started going to UCSD in La Jolla. And I went from trying to figure out how to become friends with very, very poor people in Latin America to trying to figure out how to become friends with largely spoiled, privileged kids from you know, the upper middle class in sororities. Because the culture shock was so dramatic. I was still grieving. There was a four-year-old boy who died of leukemia the last week that I was there who had been a constant part of our ministry. And um, I was like still grieving the death of him while trying to get along with 18-year-old, my 18-year-old um, roommates at UCSD, and it was just it was really hard. And I think I, that whole first month, I must have come across as really distant or standoffish because I was just not in the headspace to be able to interact well. Um, I also think about a time when I was 14 and in uh, Escondido cruising on cruising Grand, the summer event they do on Friday nights, um, my parents were eating dinner at the restaurant across the street and I like broke out my guitar case and was just standing on the sidewalk playing some songs and had my guitar case open. And this homeless woman named Sue came up to me and started talking to me because I didn't immediately figure it, figure it out. But I later realized that she assumed that I was also homeless and that I was trying to survive by playing music on the sidewalk. And that was a real, I, I think that was kind of a culture shock experience because all of a sudden I was on the receiving end of somebody's kindness and generosity. She was trying to take me under her wing and tell me where I could go to sleep and who I could look, for, for, look to for protection. Um, and this whole conversation was happening and it only clicked like 20 minutes later that she thought I was a runaway and um, that was my first real introduction to street life and what, what kinds of things you need to think about on the street um, that was a really powerful experience so what, okay, what are the stages of culture shock? Um, I looked this up on the internet. I said, first stage is often a honeymoon stage, where everything about the new culture is fascinating and it's so different and it's kind of ex- 
exciting and intoxicating. And then once you're there long enough in this new social environment, you start the differences between your background and your new context start becoming really highlighted. And it becomes a more frustrating thing as you can't figure out how to get things done, how to communicate with people, um, what's considered normal, what their version of polite or impolite is, all that kind of stuff becomes really difficult and you're to the negation stage or frustration stage. And then hopefully with enough time and practice in your new cultural environment, whether it's in another country or just in a different social context, like being at UCSD or being in Honduras, whatever, um, there's the adjustment period where you start to figure out, okay, not everything about this culture is bad. There's some good, I can see some good in it. I can start to figure out how to communicate with people and how to get things done. And then there's mastery, where you're kind of fully assimilated into the culture and you can blend in well. So we're thinking about these stages in terms of ministry and interacting with different social groups and cultural groups um, as Christians. I think in, in my experience, a lot of people often get stuck in either the honeymoon stage or the negation stage, where it's kind of like, everything about this culture is great, and I'm so excited about um, you know, learning all these new things and having all these new experiences that I've never had before, and it's kind of this thrilling newness. Or the negation stage, where it's everything about this culture is bad, I don't like it, it rubs me the wrong way, makes me uncomfortable, um, made morally uncomfortable, like we talked about, you know, I'm not comfortable with the, with the moral environment. And people get stuck, um, either with sort of idolizing or just completely dismissing other social or cultural contexts that they're in. So that's culture shock serving as a barrier. The, the differences between our social context and the new social context they were being put in, the differences are what we're focusing on so much so that we withdraw. Right. I think um, moving past either of those two stages, either the honeymoon stage or the frustration stage, I think that requires a lot of introspection. Like, why am I so uncomfortable in this setting? You know, what is it about this cultural group that I'm interacting with that's rubbing me the wrong way? And is that based in something substantive? Or is that mere superficial cultural differences that I can, that I can learn to appreciate and learn to get over? Um, also, we talked last time about this idea of ethical content, like do we dismiss certain things or certain people simply because it rubs us the wrong way and makes us feel uncomfortable or is there an actual ethical content to that discomfort? And a lot of times I think it's the former. Um, so that's another question we ask ourselves. Is this really an issue of right or wrong or is this just an issue of what I'm comfortable with and not comfortable with? And then it's, it's this attitude of humility. What does this 
culture or social group have to teach me? Not only what do I have to teach them, but what can I learn from them? And what this all really boils down to is love is just simple love for our neighbor, the person. Regardless of what about their culture is attractive to us or what about their culture is unattractive to us. Just a love for each individual person. Both because of and in spite of the cultural differences that we might have with them. So I think, again, we saw last time with the uncleanness idea that it's largely driven by fear. This fear of being contaminated by somebody else's sin. Um, I think that base level fear is operative here too. It's this being thrown into a social context where you feel like an outsider. You don't know how to navigate. It's this fear of otherness or fear of not belonging. And that that sense of um, sort of inability to figure out what to do, who to talk to can really be a barrier, right? Because if you feel afraid of how people are going to react to you, then you don't reach out. Have you guys felt this way in San Diego ever? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just in, in being in a different social group? Like, I think when I got to UCSD and I was totally mentally still in Honduras, um, not only that, but, you know, my experience of being, of growing up mostly with friends from church, you know, I had a lot of non-Christian acquaintances, but my core group of friends were all Christian. Um, and so the culture of 18-year-olds at a university campus was very shocking, just even if I hadn't been coming from Honduras. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out what's motivating people. That's a, that's a big thing in terms of culture shock. We, we see these behaviors that to us seem um, to have no reason, and we don't understand why people do these things. Whether that's, you know, just different different countries have different norms in terms of you shake hands or do you bow, that kind of thing. That can seem kind of arbitrary. But social norms too, like what people talk about, what they consider normal or abnormal, what's weird, what's not, um, that can feel alienating if you're not hip to what's going on. Thinking about culture shock and thinking about getting over that, we see in the, in the Bible so many examples. My favorite is Paul when he's talking about learning as a missionary how to interact with everybody from Jews to Greeks. Opposite ends of conservative liberal spectrum, racial, nationality, moral spectrum. I mean, Jews and Greeks. Very far apart in his time, right? I didn't put the verse up there. I had it last week, but you may be familiar where Paul basically says, I became a Jew to the Jews to win the Jews. And to a Greek, to the Greeks, I became like a Greek to win the Greeks. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, etc. I became all things to all people, so that by by some means I might win some. But that phrase, "all things to all people," is kind of the the uh, point of emphasis that he's trying to make. Is that Paul? 
totally secure in his identity in Christ, totally secure in his discipleship of Jesus, is able to assimilate to all these very different social settings and cultures and speak in a Jewish way to Jews and in a Greek way to Greeks. You compare, for example, uh, Peter or Stephen's speech in the first couple chapter of Acts, chapters of Acts. They're talking to the Jews who literally had killed Jesus not long before. And what kind of speech format do you see? They start with the history of Israel, using texts from the Old Testament, comparing him to David, going through the whole history of Israel because they're talking to Hebrews. Compare that with Acts 17 where Paul's speaking in Athens to Greek philosophers. He doesn't quote the Bible. He quotes their philosophers and their poets because he's speaking in a Greek way to Greeks. Same gospel in both settings. Right? But he doesn't quote Greek philosophers to the Hebrews and he doesn't quote David to the Greeks because there was, there was no common ground or common framework for that to be interpreted. So he had to navigate each culture and figure out what is there in this culture that's already there? What existing ideas are already present that I can sort of um, grab onto and latch onto to communicate the gospel? So that's what missionary learning is. It's trying to figure out how can I communicate my idea your way? How can I tell you as, tell you as a Hebrew or you as a Greek the gospel in a way that you truly understand? And this, this is just, whenever you learn a new language, this is the stages that you go through. Um, again, when I showed up in Honduras in the beginning, I was used to suburban America type analogies or metaphors for explaining things. So even things like, you know, just having cars or having multiple rooms in your house or having a small family that are just completely a part of my framework. Even simple things like that that I would try to draw on to teach a Bible study as an example of something were just completely lost on my audience. Part of that was because my Spanish wasn't very good, and I didn't—I hadn't picked up on the sort of the slang or the natural idioms of my context. And part of it was that I had, at that point, failed to really study my culture and figure out how I could communicate biblical ideas in a way that would make sense in the fay. I think as time went on, and after many trial, many examples of trial and error, and throwing out a metaphor that clearly didn't get the point across because it's from a different cultural context. <laughs> Trying to figure out, okay, what's something in this culture, in this social setting that I can sort of hijack and use as a, an example or a metaphor so that it makes sense to these people. Um, yeah. Because, again, language learning, you can't learn how to really speak a language fluently just by taking a bunch of rules of grammar and following the logic of it. That's not how languages work. That's not how communication works. It's all about learning the natural idioms and flow and expression of that language in order to speak it well. That's what fluency is. I think that's what cultural fluency is as well. Not just in 
languages, but entering a culture and trying to pick up on what are the inherent um, idioms or common framework that people are already using and already thinking about that I can adopt in order to introduce this new idea of the gospel. So that, again, that takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of introspection, asking ourselves deep questions about why we're, why we feel certain ways in different contexts, trying to get to the root of that. And then taking the, the time and having the attitude of service and love to think of learning another culture, learning another way of communicating as an act of service to our neighbors. Again, it's part of loving your neighbor. Obviously, we do have something that like is mm-hmm. worth hearing, but ra- like coming in humility rather than coming in pride, yep. coming in humility, saying like, "Let me know what your struggles are, and then let's talk about kind of what I have to say in response to that." Rather than rather than coming assuming we know what the answer is to kind of their the solution and all the problems, kind of goes And I, in my experience, people pick up on that like so quickly. Whether, whether you're coming at me with an agenda of things that I like need to accept immediately, mm-hmm. or whether you're coming in for a dialogue, you know, yeah. it comes across like so apparently. Um, so the point is, you know, to to be asking ourselves these questions: Are we highlighting cultural differences or minimizing them? Are we taking the care and the time and the intention to? Uh, communicate at the, in the best possible way to get the meaning across in the most intelligible possible way? Or are we being lazy in our communication and just saying what makes sense to us without considering whether it makes sense to them? Okay, this was supposed to be the short section. <laughs> okay, last barrier that I want to highlight, especially on our end, again, we're going to be talking about what other people's barriers might be, but I think a big barrier on our end is the discomfort we feel when we're directly confronted with other people's suffering. Um, Pain, brokenness, trauma. When we come face-to-face with somebody else's apparently unresolvable problem, and how that makes us really uncomfortable, and that can really be a barrier. Why, why are we uncomfortable? I think one, one reason, at least, is this American instinct to solve problems. Our country, historically, has been really good at solving a lot of problems. We've nearly eliminated um, extreme poverty in this country. You know, there's poverty, but not anywhere near the kind of poverty that there used to be. We've 
cured a lot of diseases. We've solved so many technological problems. Um, so we all have this idea that like we should be able to fix things. We fix a lot of things. We should just be able to continue fixing things. We're super individualistic. If you look at like sociological studies of world cultures, they usually do one one comparison is whether you're an individualistic culture or a community-centered uh, culture, whether you're focused on the group or the individual. And the U.S. is always on the farthest possible extreme of individualism. Every time. So we're very focused on what the individual does and how their individual actions produce results. There's a lot of karma uh, thinking in our in our culture. Um, we're optimistic. I mean, I think we're getting less optimistic culturally. I think that's been tested recently. Um, but I think historically, the American mindset has been that things are just getting better and better, and we should expect great things in the future. Incomes are going up, infant mortality is going down, and that's just going to keep on going. Um, so I think when... <laughs> yeah. Depends on what you consider better, obviously. But I think that's sort of, from the foundation, America is this new world, it's this new opportunity, right? So it's very embedded, this optimism is embedded into our cultural mindset. Um, and I think that that all combines to create this this um, approach that we often all have by default when we're confronted by people's pain or suffering our first instinct much of the time is to solve it you know, you have to solve the problem I work at a, at a um, group home for foster teens which is the highest possible level of behavioral and mental issues is why they're in that group home and emotional disturbance is the clinical term. Um, so it's really it's really in the heart of the world of children's mental health, which is a really interesting world to be in. And I think mental health services are extremely important. I don't want to minimize that. But something that I see a lot with how therapists and all the staff approach our kids' problems is there's got to be a solution to this. You know, if you're depressed, let's fix your medication. If you are having anger outbursts, then let's figure out how to give you new coping skills. Because your old coping skills weren't working. Let's figure out some new coping skills. Um, or you can't handle waiting. You know, as a staff, I feel like this a lot of times kids have a really hard time waiting for things. So the answer is, okay, let's scramble and figure out how to get it for you faster. we got to fix that problem so it's just this like constant instinct you have a problem we'll fix it with therapy or medication or fix it when you're making the system work more sweetly all of those things are important but what I'm just trying to highlight is that there's there's little sense of you know you might be experiencing a problem and there might not be an immediate solution for it right now you might have to just sit with that problem for a while and just figure out what that means as opposed to immediately solving it. Um, 
think that this can happen in the church too, um, in our Christian culture, where a lot of the times our instinct when we're when somebody's going through something or something's really painful or they're experiencing doubt is to sort of mentally scramble like what's the right answer that's going to solve this problem um, and it's almost that itself that negates the person's feelings yeah. and experience in that kind of emotional trauma or right. whatever you know, like trying to fix it, like, oh, like, yeah, 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 okay, well, um, this is yep. what you do, yep. instead of coming alongside that person and mourning with them and, and hearing them out, right. validating their feelings, how they're experiencing what they're yep. Right, and again, as we've seen now a couple times, I think there's a huge amount of fear that's operating at the base level that's driving that discomfort. It's like fear of powerlessness, fear of not having an answer. You're going through something, and I don't know how to fix it, and that scares me, because what does that say about me or my ability to help you or control the situation or, like, restore emotional equilibrium? We're afraid of that, and it drives this sort of frantic problem-solving mode. Um, this happens in the Bible. <laughs> you guys know the story of Job? Yeah. <clears throat> Loses everything, his family, his health, his wife deserts him, everything is horrible. In Job 8, so still sort of early on, Job has 40 something chapters. So Job 8, still kind of in the early stages, his friend Bildad says, if you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely then you will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. <laughs> right? If you if you repent and get right with God, then it'll be better. Yeah? If you if you change your perspective on all of these bad things that are happening to you, it won't be so bad. Right. Right? But then in by the time you get to Job twenty two not only is it like you should repent and you'll be better, but it's his other friend Eliphaz literally says, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. Says that to the suffering person. So it only takes 22 chapters before they're blaming the victim and making it all, his suffering is all because of his sin. You're the bad guy. Bad job, Joe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting reading Job and seeing how his friends get frustrated, increasingly frustrated with how he has a retort. He's like, no, but I have repented. No, but I am w- walking with God. I have not cursed him. And they're like, no, there's got to be an answer. There's got to be a way to solve this problem. And the only thing that they end up, uh, up with at the end is that, well, your, your iniquity is abundant. You are the problem. Um, and I think when you compare what Job's friends say to him with this problem-solving instinct, when you compare that with what Job says in the book of Job, he just cries out in lament, in doubt. Even it sounds like anger at times with God, just utter confusion. But you see through everything that Job says in, in that book, 
a much lever, a much um, deeper level of the knowledge of God and of true spirituality and true intimacy with God. Even though he's in this place for the whole book of confusion. He doesn't understand what's happening. He doesn't have an answer. His problem is not solved. But his intimacy with God, his relationship with God, is clearly a lot deeper than his friends who are just throwing out platitudes and defaulting to moralism. Um, When I was thinking about why pain, other people's pain, makes us so uncomfortable, I thought of three things. I'm sure you guys could think of more, but um, the three things I thought of was that it may touch on areas of pain inside ourselves that are still sensitive or unresolved. If somebody's... um, Mourning the loss of anything, a person or a vision that they had for their life, that might tap into the, our own sense of loss and how we are still mourning, grieving certain things, and how we maybe didn't have an answer for that grief, and that other person's grief just sort of brings that all out again. We might be left feeling powerless again to resolve the issue or to remain emotionally equilibrium. Really intense pain and suffering just leaves you with this sense of kind of helplessness. What is to be done here when you can't just fix it? And then the third one is that I think, especially as Americans, we're culturally terrified to admit the world is a painful place. It really is, and that we're all going to die. You know, we're, we've talked about, uh, Rob's talked about our unwillingness to admit death culturally and I think that it's it's that same that same American instinct that like we should be able to fix things. We should be able to make the world a much more livable place than it is. I think there's that there's that that fear of death increases this sense of franticness or urgency. Because if we're afraid of we're afraid that our time's gonna run out, that our lives are gonna run out and we're gonna still have all these unresolved problems and all these this unanswered suffering, and if we're if we're operating out of that fear of death that our time's running out, it creates this franticness and this this anxiety of both addressing our own pain and brokenness and addressing other people's pain and brokenness. So again, fear is driving a lot of the uh, discomfort when we're immediately present with somebody who's suffering. So, responding to this barrier is, again, to look at how Jesus has responded to us in our pain. Um, Isaiah says, yeah. Can I say something about that last part? Yes. Yeah. I think that's... um, it's even more complicated. I mean, what you're saying, you know, what you're, everything you said is true. But the, the hardest, even harder than that, is when someone is, is that you care about and love is at a, a level of real, what you said, um, dysfunction and pain and and, um, and suffering. And it's really clear what the 
Good point. It's, it's not only fear of not being able to find the solution, but fear of not being able to convince them of the solution. Like, I why I see this so clearly. Why can't you understand? Why can't you just change a little bit and you would, your suffering would be so easy? Maybe we can continue some of this next week because I think thinking about how not to do that and what to do instead is a really big question and not again not an easy answer. Not a, not a problem that just has an easy solution. But one thing that I want to throw out there, again, thinking about what, how Jesus has loved us, how Jesus has drawn near to us in our pain, is thinking of um, that phrase from Isaiah where it says, by his wounds we are healed. It doesn't say by his righteousness or by his health even, thinking about healing. It says, by his wounds we are So thinking about how that informs how we approach other people's suffering. This contrast of the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with that contrast. Um, Martin Luther coined that, those phrases. And we don't have time to go into it super in depth, but I just wanted to read this quote about this idea. Um, Theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things or to move past them rather than looking them squarely in the face and accepting them. Theologies of glory acknowledge the cross but view it primarily as a means to an end, an unpleasant but necessary step on the way to personal improvement, the transformation of human potential. As Luther put it, puts it, the, theo- the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering, like Job's friends. They did not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, the theologian of glory prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. 
The theology of glory is the natural default setting for human beings addicted to control and measurement. This perspective puts us squarely in the driver's seat after all. The idea of this phrase, theology of glory, is to think about certain ways, and it's our default way, of approaching our faith and approaching life that puts most of the emphasis on our personal improvement, our personal uh, growth, what we're doing kind of highlights sanctification as like the main thing about getting better. And what that does in terms of how we approach suffering is that, again, it's this problem-solving instinct. We've got to figure out how to make this better as the main goal, as the main point. Um, as opposed to a theology of the cross, meaning an emphasis on the cross as the main thing that God has said to our suffering. You know, if you think about the main way that God has responded to our suffering, this side of the second coming, is by entering into it, by becoming like us, suffering and dying. That's his main... You know, of course, there's a lot of other biblical things to say about suffering, about how God uses suffering for our good. But the biggest display of God's answer to suffering in this world is the cross. It's Jesus himself suffering. And so it shifts the emphasis away from your personal improvement or how you how your suffering is making you better and better in this con- constant upward trajectory. Not that that's not happening, but it just shifts, shifts the emphasis onto receiving God's mercy in the middle of your suffering and in the middle of your brokenness. And the, the emphasis is shifted back onto... God's love and God's um, participation with us in our broken humanity. If, because the risk, of course, is that if our main message to suffering people is that they need to improve, then we've, we've missed the gospel completely. Where is the gospel in that? And I think it also sort of makes this assumption that people don't already know that they need to improve. I think a lot of times people already know that, that they're contributing to their problems. You know? um, a lot of the time people don't need to be told once again that they are the problem. They need to be told that God's mercy and love meets them there, even in their dysfunction. So the, the, the theology of the cross or what we see, the point is what we see Jesus doing to us is meeting us with his love and mercy in our brokenness and pain. We see that Jesus' wounds are the source of our healing. I think what that teaches us is that similarly, our wounds and our, our own personal experience with pain and brokenness can also be its own source of healing. For other people. Not, not only the lessons that we may have learned from our suffering, which is also can be very valuable to, to share experiences and lessons learned, but just that shared brokenness can be healing. Again, as we see with Jesus. Um, what, what Jesus says from the cross is that 
I know what pain, dysfunction, and brokenness are, how they feel, so you don't need to hide that from me. It's just this open invitation to not be so ashamed or not be so distant from God because he doesn't understand our brokenness, but to just be fully invited in with all of our dysfunction. I know that Jesus really gets that. And so and that's how he draws near to us. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Even with Christ we were blaming the victim. Yeah. <laughs> right? Even with Christ we were saying, You've been punished by God. It's, you know, you're doing this to yourself. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Um, I think the main takeaway from this, and again, I think there's so much more to think about and work through how this would really look like in practical application. But the main thing I'm trying to say is that um, approaching other people's pain and brokenness from a position of shared pain and shared brokenness. Not as I'm the healthy person who will come fix you, the sick person. But that I am also wounded and sick and broken and I'm approaching you on your same level. And Rob pointed out when we were talking earlier this week, I thought this was really cool, that um, in communication, if I'm talking about something that I know about and I've experienced, but you don't know about and you haven't experienced, there's no communication. But the sweet spot of true communication is when we're talking about something that we both know about and we both experience. Right? So in terms of thinking about how to communicate well with people and cross these social barriers, it's to realize how much there truly is in that in that space of shared knowledge and shared experience, even though we may not have had the same circumstances or same life events. Like with the people that I work with at the Ladle, for example, I don't personally know what life on the streets is like, but I do know what fear and loneliness and feeling like everything's out of control and feeling like I don't have a place, I know what those things feel like. And so I can communicate with, not to the maximum level of somebody who's been through the exact same experience, but I can still communicate with and share that brokenness with somebody on the streets, anybody at Ladle, um, because I can tap into those own, to my own areas of woundedness and brokenness and share with them in that. And I think that can be very healing for them and for me. Again, we've seen that God has come as close to us as he possibly could in every way. Last time we saw that Jesus has identified with our humanity to the maximum level. And today we're kind of reflecting on that, the fact that Jesus has identified with our suffering and our pain to the maximum level. 
perceived Jesus was wounded. And so what that means is that he shares this deep solidarity or fellowship with us in our pain. Which means that our ministry should also be characterized by this shared brokenness, this shared woundedness in the same way that Jesus ministers to us as we point each other towards the cross as the the one real answer for everything we go through. That's all I got. Okay. It's definitely over time. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.